0: Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Our text is actually somewhat lengthy this morning. We'll begin at chapter 2, verse 11, and go through chapter 3, verse 7. And part of the reason for that is you're going to see the there's several kind of repeated exhortations to be subject um, and so all Christians being subject to the government, slaves subject to masters, wives subject to husbands. What's going on here? Why does Peter keep repeating his advice? Well, it's because he's telling us as Christians, having having already shown us who we are in the last passage, we are God's people, remember, um, we are royal priests, uh, we are a holy nation, we are God's treasure. Having told us who we are, he tells us now how to live. And And how then shall we live? We live as those who are out of step with the world around us. We we live as those who are exiles from our true home, as strangers, as aliens, as exiles. That's what he's going to tell us. And there's no other way to to feel out of step as to, to live in the way that he's prescribing for us as we follow the pattern of Jesus, empowered by his death and resurrection. In order then to see how Peter is calling us to live under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we, we need not only an inspired scripture, we need hearts illuminated by the Spirit's working. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come desiring to, to hear your word and to be changed in such a way that we are enabled to live it. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and you would open our eyes of faith this morning. That we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So second excuse me, first Peter chapter two, beginning in verse eleven. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps." but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or or the clothing you wear, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what is it like not to have a home? What's it it like to feel as though you're, you're a constant stranger like you're a regular outsider like you don't quite fit in you don't quite belong. I know something like that. Um, I, one of the more challenging questions for me is is where are you from because because I was born in New Jersey and then moved to Virginia, moved to England, back to New Jersey, and then we moved to Houston, Texas, and then back to New Jersey outside of New York and then to Northern Virginia that's where I went to high school and went to college in Virginia and South Carolina, and then Sarah and I got married and lived in Indiana, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Louisville, Kentucky, St. Louis, Missouri, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and here. that's a lot of different places. And so as I say, one of the more challenging questions is that I get asked is, so where are you from? Well, everywhere, nowhere. It's a challenge. I'm, I'm profoundly jealous of those of you who are who are native Memphians, who've lived here your entire lives, you know where you're from, you know all the places to go, you know so much of the history and so many of the stories, um, you, you get all the jokes. Um, as someone who's always been new every place I've ever been, it's, it's always a challenge to build those relationships and to, and to feel like you're from some place, because you're really not. You're an outsider. You're a stranger. You don't you don't quite belong. Of course, I I feel like that, but but to a greater degree, those who are migrants or who are immigrants, they they feel that too. Perhaps you've read Frank McCourt's prize-winning book, Angela Ash Angela's Ashes. If you have, you know that it tells his story that he was uh, born to an Irish immigrant family. He is Irish. Uh, was born in New York City, but then when he was um, kind of a teenager, moves back with his family to Limerick, Ireland. And so he's uh, Irish, he's American, he's living in Ireland, he doesn't feel like he belongs anywhere. He belongs in both worlds, but he doesn't really belong to either world. I've I've heard that experience from others. I had the privilege when I was academic dean at Covenant Theological Seminary to recruit Dan Kim to our faculty to teach Old Testament. Dan was Korean. He was actually Korean-American, born in Southern California, but he was a Korean-American born to a family of missionaries to Thailand. And so he's a Korean-American growing up in Thailand, and he would often talk about the fact that he didn't really belong anywhere was he Korean was he American was he Korean American was he a Thai he was belonged to all those places and yet to to none of these places the, this sense of of being out of place being out of step a stranger an outsider well, that's exactly what Peter is getting at here he, he wants us to see that living the Christian life means that we live as strangers as outsiders, as exiles. After all, this letter opens up with Peter uh, writing to those who are the elect exiles. That's the very first letter, of, uh, very first verse of this letter. In chapter 1, verse 17, he, he called us to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. But especially here in our passage this morning, Peter roots all that he will say moving forward in this self-identification that we see ourselves as strangers, as outsiders, as foreigners and exiles. We're resident aliens, if you will, visiting foreigners, he says. We're exiled from our true home, our, our real country, and so in the light of that, how do we feel? How should we live? Well, there are times when when we feel that this is the case. There are times we feel as though we're strangers here. Times we feel like we are exiles. Perhaps you feel it during a, an election cycle when we have candidates whose, whose values and whose demeanor are so diametrically opposed to biblical Christianity. We, we feel completely out of step with our, with our governmental leaders or or when you read in the newspapers, or you watch the news, what's going on in our country? In those times, you feel like a stranger in a strange land. You, you watch, you read about drag queen shows, or you see all these carjackings or murders, and you you wonder what in the world has happened to this country and this place where I used to feel so at home, and now I feel out of step, out of out of joint. Well. I suspect most of us have had a feeling like that, or had a sense of being a, a stranger, an outsider, an exile. But, but I suspect for most of us, on a day-to-day basis, we don't actually feel like exiles, do we? Rather, we feel like elites. We don't really feel like outsiders, we really feel and act like insiders. Because, of course, we understand how power works. We understand how business happens. We, we know how to get things done. We are close to the center of how things happen. We understand how our relational networks play out, how, how necessary it is to play the game. We, we speak the same language and we hang out in the same places and we, we do the same things. We understand how peer pressure works. Peer pressure just wasn't just something we experienced as teenagers. We as adults, we experience it all the time. We experience it with our kids. Where do they go to school? What, what sports do they play? What, what travel games do they go to? It defines so much of who we are, what we do. We understand these things and yet not fully understand how living as insiders, how living as elites actually moves us away from the biblical picture that Peter gives us here this biblical understanding and and this biblical principle. What's the biblical principle? Well, it's, it's right there in verse 11. Look at your Bibles again. You see it. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what's the principle? Well, the principle is simply this. We must see ourselves as we actually are. We're not just royal priests, holy nation, God's treasure, God's people. We're also to see ourselves as sojourners, as strangers, as exiles. In the same way, as Abraham in the Old Testament saw himself as a sojourner in the land of promise, as he went through the so-called promised land, living among the Canaanites, looking for his true homeland, so we do as well. Because, of course, we belong to another nation. We belong to the holy nation called church. We belong to a holy people, the people of God. We belong to those who've been claimed by Christ blood to a church that's been built by christ nail peter's hands and so we should always feel a little displaced we should always feel a little out of step and if we do if we see ourselves this way we we find that our way of life moves in two directions one direction is that we we abstain from our disordered desires did you see it peter says that in verse 11 i urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Of course, that that fits with what Peter's told us earlier in chapter 1, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 1. In those places, he said, we do not conform to our disordered desires or we put away our disordered desires. Here, he says, we abstain from our disordered desires, from the disordered desires of our old way of living. Likewise, we don't conform ourselves to the lifestyles of those around us. We don't take the the lifestyle of the elites as our measure, whether it's the elites in the larger culture or the elites in our own social networks, in our own peer groups. We we don't let them set the agenda for us. We don't do what they do. Rather we abstain knowing that that the disorder desire wages against us and instead, second direction, we embrace a different way of life. That's what Peter says in verse 12. We, we seek to keep our conduct among the Gentiles, among unbelievers, among the so-called pagans. We keep our conduct honorable so that, so that even though we might feel and seem subversive and out of step to those around us, still they would see our good deeds and glorify God. Remember what Jesus said? Let your light shine among men, that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Peter's, he, he's internalized Jesus' message, and he tells us the same thing here, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the principle, but, but what does it look like? How do we put flesh on that, on that principle? What are the particulars of the way of life that this principle helps us with? What does it look like to live as an exile? Well, it certainly looks like living differently uh, compared to those around us. And that difference can be summed up in one word that Peter's going to repeat over and again. The one word is is submit. You see, starting in chapter 2, verse 13, and extending to chapter 3, verse 6, Peter's going to tell various groups of people to submit. He's going to tell all christians to be subject to to submit to the government he's going to tell slaves to be subject to to submit to masters he's going to tell wives to submit to husbands now that word be subject to or submit it's a word that has the idea of of getting in line of lining yourselves behind someone who's in front of you. you. You remember that book? It was super popular about 20 years ago, Everything I Le- Needed in Life I Learned in Kindergarten. There, there was a chapter in there where the author talked about the thing. one of the things he learned in kindergarten was getting in line and how important it was to learn to get in line, to be able to be in order and to follow or to lead, as the case may be. Well, there's a sense in which Peter's telling us that To to live as a Christian, to to live as a stranger here, as an exile, means getting in line. And and being in order behind someone who's in front doesn't mean that the person who's third in line or fifth in line or seventh in line is worse than or less valuable than the person who's at the front of the line. Rather, this is God's way of maintaining order in his world. Now listen, if there is any more countercultural message that Peter could have given, it'd be hard to conceive of one. This was countercultural in the first century, just as it's countercultural in the 21st century, that that we are to live our lives in line with those who have some measure of authority. But but there's some things you have to notice about what Peter's saying, And, and the first is simply this. This submission, this being subject to, has a motivation and purpose. It's for the Lord's sake. Peter says that over and again. Look at verse 13. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word... They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Did you see it? At each point, this, this particular of submission has, has the gospel in view with governing authorities. It's to do good for them and go, to do good to them, to, to make their lives easier, to support them in their callings of punishing evil instead of acting like the pagans around us who do everything that they can to make the authorities lives more difficult christians cooperate with and try to make their lives easier with with masters slaves should treat them with respect even even when treated with disrespect there's no retaliation it's the gospel's at stake With husbands, wives should line themselves up, even to unbelieving husbands, even to to foolish husbands. Why? Well, the gospel's at stake. We show the truth of the gospel by doing good and by serving those in authority over us. Those who are, if you will, at the front of the line. We, we We don't give in to our passion of rage and strike back at the authorities, seek to do violence to them. We, we don't give in to our passion of greed to steal from them, to take that which doesn't belong to us. We, we don't give into our passion of lying to hide the truth from them. We, we don't give in to our passion of contempt, cutting our husbands for their folly. We, we don't use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. Rather, as Peter tells us, we live as people who are free. We live as servants of God. That, that's why the imperatives of chapter 2, verse 17, they make sense as an overarching code or creed for the Christian life, a life that's one of submission, namely, honor everyone. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. It's a great summary of, of this Christian life that puts us so much out of step with the world around us. The hard thing is, is that as we do what is good, and and in doing so, we we serve God, it it very well may be that we, we end up suffering as a result. Certainly, Peter speaks most directly of this result when he's speaking to slaves. You saw that, right? Verse 19, he says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if... When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if you, when you do what is good, you su- and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Think how subversive that was! How subversive it was to do good while enduring sorrows from harsh masters. How subversive it was as a, as a testimony to the gospel. I will not retaliate. I will endure because Jesus gives me strength. Think how subversive it is to to be good, even when the emperor is beating you, as the emperor certainly did in Peter's day. This letter was likely written after Paul was beheaded, before Peter was crucified, prior to AD 70. Peter was well aware of the opposition and and persecution that the emperor, Nero, was was lodging against the Christians. How, how, How subversive it was. To do good even when beaten by the emperor for the testimony of the glory of God. How how subversive it is to do good even when when ignored by an unbelieving husband. Uh, Especially in this marriage relationship. We see how subversive it is. that, That this inner beauty that comes from the gospel. That comes from the spirit's transformation so that so that a gentle and quiet spirit that springs from hope in God is what characterizes the spouse. It's, it's so different from the world around us. What Peter writes here isn't, doesn't mean that wives were to be a doormat, that the husband could walk all over, nor did it give excuse for the husband to give poor treatment or abuse or to say, I'm the head, you need to listen to me. I mean, Peter rules that out in verse 7 calls on husbands to treat their wives not as weaker vessels the language there is actually precious vessels vessels that are easily broken like a priceless vase that we're to care for no peter's not giving any excuse for abuse rather he's pointing up that that submitting and even suffering done from the gospel's sake is a a position of great power it can function redemptively Last night, I I just finished reading this brand new biography of Martin Luther King Jr. by um, a man named Jonathan Eig, E-I-G, that just came out last week, Um, extremely well-reviewed. And it's uh, probably my fifth, sixth, seventh biography that I've read of Dr. King. And each time, but especially this time, was reminded of his profound commitment to nonviolence in the face of violence and in the face of suffering. Uh, Even as he would end up protesting the war in Vietnam and in the process losing so much support for the civil rights movement, alienating President Johnson, persuading J. Edgar Hoover that King was really a communist, even as he he did all of this, he did so out of his profound belief in nonviolence, that, that nonviolent response in the face of suffering is in fact redemptive. And in that regard, that's what Peter's saying here. That that submitting and even suffering for the gospel's sake is a position of great power. It can win over the governor. It can win over the master. It can win over the unbelieving husband. But we we reckon, you're, you're probably sitting there saying, okay, great, that's what the Bible says. Come on, Sean. How in the world are we supposed to live this way? This is, this is completely out of step, not just with my like, culture around me, the larger culture, my peer networks, but it's, it's out of step with what my own heart desires. How do we live this way? Well, it's only possible when we follow Christ's pattern. But look at what Peter says in verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called. This kind of life, this kind of pattern. To this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow might follow in his steps. Now, there are two word pictures here. We've been called to this. We've been called to live this way as strangers and out, e- outsiders and exiles. But there's these two word pictures. Leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. That, that first phrase, leaving you an example, um, it's this picture. Perhaps you taught your kids to read this way. Maybe you had this mat um, where you had the letters capital A, little a, capital B, little b, capital C, little c, and so forth. This mat with the letters, and then you, you place a transparent piece of paper over the mat with the letters, and then you helped your child, you took his or her hand to trace out the letter A, little a, B little b, c, little c. That's the word picture. Leaving you an example, Jesus is the pattern over which we trace out our lives. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letter of the gospel in their lives. He's the pattern. But then there's this second word picture, so that you might follow in his steps, Many of you will be heading out to the beach some point this summer. Imagine a father or a grandfather walking along the beach, not aware of the child or grandchild walking behind. And as the father or grandfather's walking down the beach, he's leaving footsteps in the, in the sand. But behind him, the little child's not, he's not making new footsteps. He's jumping from footstep to footstep so that he might land in the footsteps of his father of his grandfather that's the idea Jesus has gone ahead of us he has suffered for doing good and just as he's put his footprints in the sand so we place our footsteps where he walked and so what's the pattern over which we trace our lives what what, what are the footsteps into which we place our own well Peter is actually going to essentially quote from Isaiah 53 starting in verse 22 Isaiah fifty three tells us he committed no sin. Neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That's the pattern. When you walk out of step, when you walk out of step with your coworkers, because you cannot you can't tell a lie. This project, this proposal you're working on, it's based on a series of presumptions and, and half-truths. And you know that you can't present it to your vendor. You step up to them and you say, we can't do this. And they revile you and you say, we got to tell the truth. Or, or when, your, when your husband wants you to drink with him like, like you used to do. That's how your relationship formed is you would drink and party or you'd sit in front of the television and drink until you both were drunk. Your husband wants you to do that again and you say, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to live that way anymore. And he begins to revile you, begins to threaten you. You don't threaten in return. You walk away. Or or when your girlfriend wants you to move in with her. And you know that as a Christian that would be wrong, that would actually violate what God's word says. And and she threatens you and says, if you don't move in with me, she's going to break up with you. She's going to leave you. You're going to be alone. You don't threaten in return. You don't revile and you don't violate what God's word says. Or or when your friends or, or your children put pressure on you to play youth sports that will take you out an increasing number of Sundays, creating distance between you and your family and the Lord, you say, no, we're not going to do that. I don't know what that means for your soccer career, your baseball career, your golfing career, but we're going to trust that the Lord's going to care for you. Well, why do you, tr- why do you live this way? Why do you do these things? Why, why do you walk out of step? Because you're in exile. Because you're a stranger. You belong to another country, another people, a holy nation, a chosen race, and Jesus is your pattern now. Jesus is the one in whose steps you walk, you follow his path, you you trace out his life as your own. But still, we, we, we feel the weight of this. How's this possible? It's possible not just because Jesus is your pattern. It's ultimately possible because Jesus is your power. He gives you power. How does he do so? Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin, And live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Don't you see? You don't do this in your own strength. Rather, it's only possible because Jesus himself bore our sins on the cross. He died for us, he purchased us for God with his own precious blood. And as he did so, he set us free, free from our wayward desires free from the condemnation of others, free from the need to please, free to live for God. And now that we're free, we have a new power to to die to sin and to live for righteousness because we belong to our shepherd. We belong to our overseer. By his wounds you've been healed. Because Jesus died, he's brought you back to God. He's given you this new power to follow in his footsteps and to live differently as a result. You are now able to do what Jesus did because he's given you power to follow his pattern it's been at least 15 or 20 years ago but you might remember these bracelets they were really simple but they seemed to be everywhere um, Allen Iverson wore these bracelets on both wrists that said WWJD. Of course, Allen Iverson, the mercurial and, and somewhat wayward point guard for the Philadelphia 76ers, probably wasn't a Christian. And yet, on both wrists, he had these WWJD bracelets. They were everywhere. That acronym, WWJD, it, it stood for what would Jesus do? You probably know all of that. What you may not know is that phrase came from a novel that was published in 1896 by a congregational minister. The minister's name was Charles Sheldon. Uh, The novel was called In His Steps, and uh, the premise of the novel was actually pretty simple. It, It asked the question how life in a particular town would change if everyone would simply ask the question, what would Jesus do? Now, before you go out and and buy the book to read it, the the book theologically is a bit of a mess. Um, But but here's why I mention it. Here's why I bring it up. Because there is a sense in which as strangers and aliens here, as those who belong to a heavenly country, a, a holy nation, who belong to Jesus, who's purchased us with his precious blood, we should live our lives here asking the question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do as we live under the rule of increasingly corrupt and irrational leaders? What would Jesus do as we suffer in the workplace, suffer in the midst of our communities, in our relational networks for doing good, for following Christ? What would Jesus do as we deal with our husbands or wives who are far from Christ, not the way they ought to be, can often be foolish and irrational? What would Jesus do? What would you do? Will you live like the world around you? Or will you live like the person you actually are? One who belongs to God's people, who's a royal priest, the citizen of a holy nation, part of God's own treasure. What will you do? Will you ask the question, what would Jesus do? Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we we desire to live this way, and yet it is so difficult. We feel the pull pull and tug of our own heart's desires, our wayward desires. We feel the pull and tug of our friends and our relational networks. Uh, We don't want to live as exiles. We really do want to live as elites. Lord, help us. May your mind, O Christ, be in us. May you dwell in us from day to day. May we know your power, May we be your channel. May others see you living your life in and through us so that we might live according to your pattern and we might walk in your steps. Lord, grant us this grace we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnal.